This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Hello, I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a talk I delivered on March 3rd, 2015 at the Insight Meditation South Bay Buddhist Vipassana Sangha. I was invited by their lead teacher, Shiloh Catherine, to come and talk about the textbook that I had written on Buddhist psychology, released in 2014 by Routledge, and it's titled Effortless Mindfulness, Genuine Mental Health Through Awakened Presence. There were a number of clinicians in the audience that evening. However, since this was a Buddhist Sangha, I decided to give a different kind of talk than I might give in a clinical setting. I chose to focus my talk on the varying conceptualizations through the three schools of Buddhism of liberation of mind and how a psychotherapist or mental health professional might, through the practical application of Buddhist psychology, facilitate liberation of mind in the people that they work with. It's quite an honor to be here. I was telling someone earlier, I, I tend not to sit in the sanghas down here in the South Bay because I like the people that I work with to be able to go to sangha without thinking their therapist is going to be there. <laughs> so that wasn't the case. I'm sure that I would be here sitting at IMSB. It's a wonderful sangha. How many of you are clinicians? Raise your hands. Okay, well, I just want to first thank you very much for everything that you do. How beautiful, but how difficult it is to spend all day um, being in the presence of suffering. So I just want to thank you all. You know, normally when I give Dharma talks, um, some of you may have heard some of my Dharma talks, I tend to put them up on the internet, and iTunes has them all, and my website has them all. Generally, you know, I have uh, a topic, and I have lots of stuff from the suttas, and I'm very interested in Buddhist practitioners actually hearing the teachings of the Buddha, because a lot of times people will practice Buddhist meditation, but not really ever read the suttas. And the impulse for me to write this book for mental health professionals was pretty much along the same lines. I'm sure you're all aware of how mindfulness has mushroomed out there in the world, and it's being delivered in so many varying forms, many of which I would say probably have very little to do with the way mindfulness was taught in the Sankhya Buddhist and yogic philosophy traditions. So my goal in writing this book was to distill in a very scholarly fashion, but also in a clinical fashion for my peers in the clinical community 
the actual teachings of the Buddha, which really hasn't been done, because very often uh, some of the Buddhist philosophy can be challenging because it flies in the face of much of what we in the Western world think of as happiness and pleasure. And I thought I would do what I normally do with other people's work, and I actually would read a little bit out of my book. Is that okay with all of you? But I'm going to do it in the way I do it when I give Dharma talks. I'm going to read specific things because it says it much better than I can say it extemporaneously here with all of you. So I'm actually, believe it or not, so embarrassing, but I'm actually going to begin on the first page of my book. <laughs> but that's mostly because I was very careful about how I started my book. I really, I'm not reading the first paragraph, uh, but I am starting with the second paragraph because I lay out the entire reason for doing this in the first page and a little bit of the second page, so I'm going to start by reading that. Coincident with the popularization of clinical mindfulness has been a movement to make mindfulness quote-unquote more accessible to everyone by separating it from its Buddhist roots. There are clinicians, myself included, who consider this effort unnecessary because these Buddhist roots have always been a philosophy slash psychology of mind that is at its core secular and research-oriented. Furthermore, mindfulness is just one of many beneficial tools contained within the profound Buddhist toolbox for awakening. Most of these tools, including mindfulness, have yet to be fully explored. This book was born from a desire to ignite interest in reuniting clinical mindfulness with its source, Buddhist psychology and philosophy, and in so doing, to return mindfulness psychotherapy to its primary function as the supreme method for liberating mind from primordial ignorance. Central to this reunification is a deeper understanding of what occurs when a mind that is lost becomes found in the act of opening to and resting in the flow of experience. This is the innate mind of awakened presence, or what Tibetan Buddhist texts refer to as lun group, or spontaneous presence. Awakened presence is the simplest state of awareness, yet its effect is profoundly liberating. Even one second of awakened presence frees us in that second from all matter of self-conceptions, including our incessant negative, self-deprecating, anxious internal narratives, the primary source of our mental and emotional suffering. Spontaneous awakened presence is a direct experience often described as effortless mindfulness. Because of its non-conceptual nature, this kind of presence is impossible to achieve 
if one seeks it from within a conceptual or intellectual frame of reference. It is not a cognitive or behavioral intervention. It is difficult to induce through strained, focused concentration on internal or external phenomena. It cannot be imagined or conjured up through visualization. Awakened presence is a natural outcome of an embodied mind recognizing what is as it is. So that's the core of what's in this book, is explaining not only what presence actually is and what awareness actually is, but how to cultivate it for yourself and for clinicians how to be able to cultivate it in the therapy process. There are many, many differences between the historical Buddha's definition of what liberation of mind constituted and how liberation of mind was subsequently defined by the various schools of Buddhism that came after the Buddha died. We do have 2,600 years of Buddhist teachings, and there are varying understandings that have existed throughout the history of Buddhism. Part of what I did in this book was to literally go through that history of Buddhism and to show how the understanding of liberation of mind shifted through the different schools. What I'd like to do is give you a taste, because I think most mental health professionals, in one way or another, are interested in liberation of mind. And I'd like to begin that by actually going almost to the end of the book. Buddhist psychology proposes to decrease the mass of human suffering by seeding the world with quiescent, wise, and compassionate people who move through their lives awakened and present to suffering and non-suffering. I imagine that many mental health clinicians resonate with that vision and believe their work aligns with similar objectives. I imagine most of the clinicians in this room would agree with that, yes? So what makes Buddhist psychology different? The Buddha asserted that liberation comes from seeking unconventional truth. The unconditioned existential awareness of our innermost beingness. Since unconditioned beingness is devoid of self-reified narratives and personal or transpersonal identities, it is beyond all conceptualizations. It cannot be arrived at through psychodynamic, content-driven, narrative-focused, or conceptually-based psychotherapeutic methods. A Buddhist psychological approach would have to offer something more. Envisage an inner pilgrimage 
designed to strip away the habitual conventionality of selfing, a form of psychotherapeutic inquiry that encourages a self to deliberately, fearlessly interact with the unconventional truth of its own emptiness. That inner pilgrimage would likely consist of interventions aimed at exposing the self's utter transparency, an insight-driven process of not finding as the ultimate finding. If not finding elicits a sense of discomfort or inconceivability, see whether you can know the phenomenality of that uneasiness. As you try to do this, see if you can find a self existing apart from the discomfort. You may experience the feeling of an identifiable self or the thought of a self, but an actual, separately existing self-entity can never be found. That is emptiness, and that is the heart of Buddhist psychology. And that, to me, frankly, is the reason why Mindfulness is being taught the way it's being taught, as a method for to relax, as a method to inoculate, as a method to feel better about things in this world that we should not be feeling better about. That is not what mindfulness is for. And it doesn't mean that when a person looks inside and they realize that basically everything they are is just a landscape of continually shifting opinions, beliefs, thoughts, desires, wants, dislikes, aversions, cravings. To know that directly is very difficult to come to terms with because we're very, very attached to the story of who we are. But a lot of the suffering I experience in my office is self-generated. People have difficulty distinguishing between the basic pain of life and the mental suffering that they actually create in order to be able to deal with the basic pain of life. But honestly, the basic pain of life is just so much better than the mental suffering people create about it. (laughs) And you're laughing because I know you all know what I'm talking about, because we all do this, myself included. Yeah, It's just some of us do it more than others. So liberation is a very, very important part of what clinicians dedicate their lives doing easing the suffering of other human beings. Yet it's very difficult to ease suffering if clinicians don't actually understand the nature of suffering. Would anyone dispute that? I'm happy to have anyone dispute that. (laughs) 
It's hard to dispute. So the key is to know suffering. Not to believe that life is suffering. That is not what the Buddha said. The Buddha never said life is suffering. All the Buddha pointed at was in every experience we have is an inherent unsatisfactoriness because nothing stays everything changes you can't hold on to anything you can't rely on anything because the nature of everything is to arise, exist and pass away and that's very hard for us the idea is not to inoculate oneself against this The idea is to have insight into it, insight that would liberate oneself from clinging and grasping at the idea that life needs to be something other than what it is. But that also doesn't mean that you become a limp fish and you do not stand up for justice and you do not work to make change happen. And... There are many people right now who are out there and asking deep and serious questions about the way mindfulness is being used in all kinds of contexts to nullify people's desire to make things happen. There's actually an entire section in my book about desire and the goal of it is to elucidate the, uh, the truth that desire is not actually the problem. The Buddha did not say desire is the problem. Clinging is the problem, not desire. Because if we didn't have desire, no good things would ever happen in the world. You have to aspire to do good things. Is this making sense? You want to hear a little bit about liberation? Okay, so let me read you the, the historical Buddha's definition of liberation of mind. For the most part, this is never talked about when mindfulness is taught. What I am about to tell you right now is never, ever talked about. The Buddha was probably our first cognitive scientist, except the way he did the work was what we now call first-person research. So first person is you directly look at what's going on with mind by looking inward. So when the Buddha looked within, he saw all kinds of things about mind that had really not been laid out in Samkhya philosophy, which is what preceded him. So Samkhya was the philosophy of mind from the Upanishads in the Vedic and Hindu tradition. The Buddha lived at a time when Sankhya had already come into existence. And what the Buddha did was he really refined what they had already started to look at and took it in a different direction because according to Sankhya, there's a reified actual self. So the Buddha looked inside and he did not see an actual self. So the Buddha taught that the Six sense consciousnesses. For the Buddha, there were six. 
So the five senses that you all know, and then the sense base of mind, the actual field of mind in which all cognitions arise, the Buddha envisioned that as actually a sixth sense, along with the other five. And he taught that all these sixth sense consciousnesses arise in concert with contact, contact with any object. What came into contact with the object were actually six sense bases. So I, each one of the five senses, had its own consciousness that would come into contact with an object. And all of what arose after the initial contact with an object was, according to the Buddha, conditioned. Now, neuroscience would actually agree with this. The conditioned aspect of the contact, you could think of it this way. When you're born, you have a genetic legacy that your body, mind, and psyche are operating under. And we have tons of research to show that even things like trauma now, we can see that this is transmigrationally offered down through the generations. One generation experiences trauma, it changes the way certain genes express, and that gets passed down to the next generations. So we know scientifically that when a child comes into the world, they come in with a legacy, and that's a lens through which they're experiencing the world. This is what the Buddha would call conditioning at a very basic level. And that conditioning has everything to do with how this psychophysical system is going to experience the world. We're not a pure vessel. We experience experience based on our psychophysical system. And as we evolve and grow in our lives and we have experiences, that system is continually changing and coming up with all kinds of frames within which it's experiencing experience. One person can experience an event, and because they're experiencing it through their mind, their physical system, that event is one thing to them. They could be with somebody experiencing the exact same event, and because that's a totally different mind, a completely different psychophysical system, the very same event could be experienced completely differently. I'm sure you've all had that experience, right? You go see a movie, you come out totally inspired, and the person you're with just was completely unmoved or upset or whatever. And, and this is called conditioning. So liberation of mind has everything to do with recognizing conditioning, what you're conditioned by. And that's very simple to do if you know the difference between your narration of your experience and experience itself. The Buddha envisioned an unconditioned way of experiencing and an unconditioned mind. And for the Buddha, it was the unconditioned aspect of mind that was the cause of liberation for all of the conditioned aspects of mind. So he said that liberation is accomplished by an unconditioned mind freed from its own 
mental afflictions and devoid of greed, hatred, and delusion. I don't know of a single mindfulness meditation intervention that mentions greed, hatred, and delusion. So greed, hatred, and delusion are critical for liberation because they are pointing at our basic human tendency. This is wired into us to run away from difficult experience and to run toward pleasurable experience. We are wired up to do this so that we can survive. If we weren't wired up to do this, we would eat poisonous plants and die. And we certainly would not procreate. <laughs> so, you know, you really have to think of the conditioned aspects of how we are as part of what's helped us to survive so that you don't hate it. Because there's no reason to hate ignorance. Ignorance just is. It's part of the human condition. And it is this primordial ignorance that prevents us from experiencing freedom even in a moment of really difficult, painful experience. And I assure you, I have seen many of the people I work with experience freedom even in a moment of really difficult insight. And largely that occurs because they are fully aware of the difference between their story about what's happening and what is actually happening. And the recognition of what's actually happening is a refuge for a suffering mind. Yes? You mentioned greed and I lost track. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Yes. And delusion. Yes. Okay, so I'll just track that. And you said they're not addressed. Next you're taught to, in essence, not worry. Isn't there a degree to which, if you're taught to be mindful and not, and basically let your worries go, you're letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion? Actually, mindfulness is not about letting your worries go, because worrying itself is a form of delusional mental behavior. There actually is nothing to worry about. <laughs> Worrying is like anxiety. Anxiety is sort of a useless mental behavior. Sure. Right? Because generally, if we're worried or we're anxious, we're somewhere other than in what's actually occurring. If something is happening to me and it's dangerous, I would be wasting my time worrying about it. I would be wanting to do something about it in the moment, wouldn't I? And if something was going to occur, I knew something was going to occur that was going to be difficult. I might be concerned that it was going to be painful for me. Worrying about how bad it's going to be is a waste of my time. Because what I would rather be doing is I would rather be dropping more deeply into how is it that I can go through this experience not harming myself or others in the experience. How can I be in a difficult experience and be the catalyst for something good to come out of it? If I'm just sitting and worrying, I'm spinning my wheels and I'm not actually engaging 
in mental activity that could be useful. It's the same as ruminating. So you can't define worry. I mean, there are things that you consume with greed or hatred or delusion. And if you are liberated of those things, yes. a lot of a byproduct might be releasing worry. But liberation from greed, hatred, and delusion doesn't mean that those things never arise in your human mind. Sure. Right? You're, liberation doesn't mean that you're a divine being. Liberation means that when they arise, you recognize wanting something other than what's happening. And then you inquire about it. Okay, I don't, I'm, I don't like what's happening for me right now. Now, is there anything I can do to change what's actually occurring right now? If the answer is yes, my hope is that a person would act in a way to make the change happen. If the answer is no, there's nothing I can do to make this different, then that's the point at which liberation from Greed, meaning desire to have this be different, turns into, okay, there is one thing I can change. That is how I am internally responding to this. Can I let go for a moment of my need for it to be different in order to be able to recognize the most skillful way for me to navigate this and do it so that harm does not occur for myself or others. The reality is that liberation means we become fully recognizing that we have the capacity in any moment, no matter what's occurring, even if it's the worst thing in the world that's occurring, to respond skillfully and to have ahimsa, non-harming, as the most important Thing that we are doing in this world in a moment like that. And hatred is aversion. That's the Buddhist word for aversion, is hatred. And aversion is going to rise, as I said. We're wired up to be averse. The question is, when aversion is arising, can a person recognize aversion and recognize that actually we don't have to run away from aversion. We can embrace aversion. We can just open and be kind-hearted to ourselves in a moment when we're experiencing aversion. That is so much better than dropping into some depressed state or an anxious narrative in order to avoid just not feeling the basic pain of an aversive moment. And the truth is, that's a lot of what people end up doing because they just think that their basic pain is going to be much worse than the distress of anxiety or depression. I'll give you an example. Some of my patients actually were very generous, and they wrote down some of their experiences, and they're included in this book, because, frankly, if I were to write all these things, people wouldn't believe me. So I said to my patients, why don't you write about what you experienced? So I'm going to read you a really good example of what liberation looks like. I woke up about 3 a.m. with a fast heart rate and thoughts of impending doom. How many of you clinicians have heard that before? 
As I became aware of my breath and the bodily feeling of anxiety, I realized I wasn't clinging to the experience of anxiety, trying to end it or diagnose the source of my pounding heart. I was just relaxing into the experience of anxiety. My mind was with the reality of my bed, the warmth and comfort of being in the dark. No threat, no danger, just seeing mine for what it was, a channel of flowing information. Reality was in my body. I felt the distance from the anxiety that was so compelling and clear. The thoughts of sudden death, impending doom, things I had done wrong, cycled through. But I stayed with them. And they felt like just racing thoughts. Then I returned awareness to my body, my refuge. The last thought I had before I fell asleep was, this must have been what Lisa meant. I get it. (laughs) I still get chills thinking about the experience. It now seems it takes less energy and focus to explore anxiety. It isn't about burying anxiety, trying to forget in order to function, but rather seeing it for what it is. That's liberation, wouldn't you say? And that was someone who, when I first started to see them, they were completely unable to have any bodily experience show up in their awareness without flying into a kind of panic that was so, so horrible for them. This is someone who had one of the most traumatic childhood histories that I think I've heard. The mind is not separate from the body. The brain has a nervous system. We now have really definitive clinical evidence that most of the major physical diseases and mental disorders have at their root cause adverse childhood environments and childhood trauma. And in fact, it appears the more kinds of childhood trauma a person experiences, the more physical and mental maladies they experience as adults. And we're not talking about a small population. Many of these studies were done with 17, 20,000 patients in major health systems. So these are people who have jobs because they can afford health insurance. It's a call to those of us who work in mental health to recognize that if you're just working with the mind, you're missing the boat now, because the mind is in the body, and the body holds trauma just as much as the mind does. And so there has to be an integrated approach. And that's one really great thing about Buddhist psychology is that Buddhist psychology innately ascribed to an integrated approach. There was nothing in body that happened that wasn't part of mind because according to Buddhist psychology everything we experience we experience because of this vessel. And the vessel is not just a bunch of neurons. It's an entire body. As Buddhism progressed, the definition of liberation extended itself. Some of the very popular forms 
of mindfulness interventions like MBSR were invented by people who primarily practiced Zen meditation. And Zen meditation was not based on the Pali Suttas. So Zen meditation came out of a very beautiful Mahayana tradition, which expanded and extended the tradition of awakening. Um, and in, in ways that had less to do with being in a monastery and doing austerities and giving up all kinds of things, and more about opening to the heart experience and awareness, just awareness itself. So the idea of liberation also extended. I want to read you an example of where this went because one of the great things about Buddhist psychology is for every kind of mind there is a certain kind of intervention. It's possible to deliver very titrated interventions for very specific kinds of minds. So whereas there might be someone who's struggling and sitting and closing their eyes and doing sitting meditation is very easy for them, there could be somebody else for whom sitting doing sitting meditation, even turning to the body, is just something they can't even go near. And there are lots of ways to be able to deliver awareness practices where you're not forcing somebody to do something they really can't do where they are. Because Buddhism is all about meeting people where they are. The Zen tradition is the, Chinese, is the Japanese version of Chan Buddhism. Buddhism did a very interesting journey from northern India, where the Buddha lived, up to China. And then it came back to India through China. And then eventually it went from northern India through the Nalanda schools up into Tibet. These teachings are very profound, and they are very powerful. And they offer a capacity for a more... Uh, effortless open awareness kind of practice. So I'm going to read you a quote from Saraha, who was one of the great early masters of the Mahamudra tradition, to give you an idea of what realization or liberation became. Mindfulness sees with certainty that all things are like an illusion, self-arising and inconceivable, Wisdom naturally abides within. These appearances have the nature of clarity. From the very first, they are unborn. Intellect, mind, and mental appearances have this very nature. All the worlds appearing in their diversity have this very nature. All the varieties of the seen and the seer have this very nature. Attachment, Desire, aversion, too, have this very nature. The ignorant are bound by mental categories. The inseparable, the co-emergent, is utterly pure. So Saraha is basically saying the same thing as the Buddha, but in a different way. Our 
mental conceptualizations of what experience is, is what prevents us from dropping in and just experiencing experience directly. And awareness, our capacity to know the innate luminosity of mind, is the key to being able to awaken in any experience. Because the innate luminosity of mind is like a clear mirror. So you have the mirror, the mirror is completely clear, whatever comes in front of the mirror is reflected accurately. Like a red cloth comes in front of the mirror. Does the mirror change when the red cloth comes in front of the mirror? Yes? No. The mirror looks different, right? But the mirror is exactly the same. It's still the clear reflecting surface. Your mind innately is that. The capacity to know, the basic capacity of awareness to know, is completely unimpeded. It's totally open-hearted toward anything that comes in front of it. It doesn't reject, it doesn't accept, it doesn't want, it doesn't crave, it's not averse. Whatever comes in front of the mind, its innate luminous nature, is received. That's who you are, essentially. Anything else is some conceptualization you've come up with about who you are. And so when we say not-self in Buddhism, this is what we are essentially talking about. Your capacity to know is the unconditioned nature of mind. It's also the unconditioned nature of everything else, by the way. But this is what we mean by unconditioned. And all things that are conditioned, they're not bad, they're not good. They can be pleasant, they can be unpleasant, they can be neutral. But if you know them as they actually are, which is just phenomena being known, you are liberated from any mental suffering about them. It doesn't mean you won't experience pain. Trust me, you will. <laughs> but it does mean that you will not be distressed by the fact that you're having a painful or a pleasant experience. And believe me, pleasant experiences are distressful too because we just want them to stick around, and they don't. So they too create distress for us. So it is 9 o'clock, which means I must stop. I would be happy to answer a burning question. Yes? Is instinct a type of condition? Well, instinct is definitely conditioned in us genetically, right? And is it easier or harder to work with genetic conditioning or instinct as, to, as opposed to what we've learned later on in life, like not to like something or to like something? Well, I would say if you can honor your instincts, because we're animals, <laughs> So if you recognize we have to have our instinctual nature yeah, in order to survive and you respect it, and, but you're not fooled by it. You know it. 
when, when your instinctual impulses arise, you should thank your instinctual impulses for arising, because otherwise you wouldn't be here. On the other hand, in that moment, you can use the clarity of mind to recognize whether or not your instinctual impulses are actually accurate in that moment. Whether they're leading you down the garden path, or whether there's actually a tiger in front of you and you need to get the hell out of there. Yeah? So, all phenomena are equal. And there isn't one thing that's harder to recognize and be liberated from than anything else. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.